Welcome to the NIHR Dementia Researcher podcast, brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk, in association with Alzheimer's Research UK and Alzheimer's Society, supporting early career dementia researchers across the world. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Dementia Researcher podcast and to our sideshow, Food for Thought, where we talk about the best evidence-based diet and lifestyle changes you can action today to reduce your risk of developing dementia. My name is Dr. Sam Moxon. I'm a regular blogger here at Dementia Researcher, and I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Dean Scherzai, who is co-director of the Alzheimer's Prevention Programme at Loma Linda University. He co-directs this with his wife, Aisha Scherzai, who sadly was caught up in surgery today and couldn't join us, but we had a really interesting discussion about the best ways you can prevent your risk of developing dementia. They've just released a book called The 30-Day Alzheimer's Solution, all about the evidence and the things you can do today to reduce your risk. It's a great discussion, and I really hope you enjoy it. So, Dr. Dean Scherzai, welcome to the Dementia Researcher podcast. Thank you very much for joining us. How are you today? Very well. Thank you so much. Thanks for having uh, me here. Um, would have loved uh, my partner, my wife, um, uh, Dr. Aisha Sherza, to be here. Um, uh, but uh, uh, I think uh, we should be able to uh, uh, have a great conversation about this topic that's actually engulfed our life for the last 20 years. Yeah, and, and I think that's a nice place to start. So just to give you some background about what we do on this podcast. So we do general dementia researcher podcasts, but myself in particular, we've started this series called Food for Thought, and it's all about prevention of Alzheimer's disease and dementia and what we can do ourselves in terms of diet and lifestyle. This all sparked through an interest from myself. I got diagnosed with ulcerative colitis a year and a half ago and started to change my diet. And in doing so, found all these other associations between the way you eat and the effects on not just your digestive tract, but your heart, your liver, and in particular of interest to me was the brain. And we've had a couple of interesting guests on the past. We've spoke to Neil Barnard. We've spoke to Dr. Alan Desmond, who I know you know quite well. And and I came across your work about a year ago and found it really interesting. And I thought now that you've released this this wonderful book, The 30-Day Alzheimer's Solution, it would be a great time to get you onto the podcast and let all the listeners know who you are and what you do. So perhaps we could start there. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having us. Um... Um, our life around dementia started about 20 years ago, although I was um, at the time working at um, NIH, National Institutes of Health, um, um, on some really esoteric um, um, stuff. Um, we really, I, 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 my interest at the time was Parkinson's. I just graduated from uh, residency from uh, Georgetown University. I was working on uh, Parkinson's disease and stem cell research and things of that nature. But at the same time, I started getting interested in Alzheimer's. Um, a fluke of you know, history and, and life just um, ended up with me uh, going to Afghanistan with um, um, uh, Health and Human Services for three months for just a stent to help out. Um, and then that turned into a three-year stent where I actually create, helped create the healthcare system there. I was the deputy minister. and. And my wife had, well, she wasn't my wife at the time, had gone back with Doctors Without Borders to help out. Um, and we traveled the world uh, on our own, helping different places. And, and, and in a gathering of expats in a uh, party, we sat next to each other and started having a conversation. And as it happened, the conversation quickly turned to our grandfathers, who were amazing, amazing human beings who actually succumbed to Alzheimer's. Uh, in her case, Parkinson's and dementia and, and Alzheimer's, uh, and mine was Alzheimer's and with vascular uh, comorbidities as well. 
And that conversation really um, was the beginning of our life because that turned to dates and that after a year we got married and and uh, then we came back and restarted our life at UCSD, which was the number one neuroscience program in the country at the time, and started working on clinical trials, fMRI studies, looking at these amazing tools that looked at the brain while the brain is actually functioning, all these things. And But there was a bit of... Uh, uh, you know, frustration in all of this because clinical trial after clinical trial, millions of dollars, lots of papers written, uh, you know, PIs with 800 publications under their belt and 900 publications under their belt, but with nothing to show for it when it comes to dementia. And now we weren't making a dent. We were not making a single dent. So that's when the two of us um, um, uh, decided to look uh, if there's another path um, uh, and, and, Looking around, uh, there was a researcher, Elizabeth Barrett Connor, amazing lady, um, again, another person with 850 publications, on it, but she was working on lifestyle and uh, she had done some of the most formative work in the country and uh, we worked with her and lo and behold, we decided to go in that path. And when we told our mentor who had set up our path to go to, you know, really big institutions starting a new research path. He said, what are you doing? This is career suicide. Nobody talks about prevention. Yeah. So that's how we started our, our journey about 18 years ago towards prevention. And it's prevention, you know, is, is such an important factor. And I'd like to get into sort of the, the vegan meat of the discussion, I'd like to say, because I can see you've got you know, your recipe books behind you and food is going to be at the front and center of our discussion today. So I want to start off with a more light, easy question, which is what does a neurologist who's working to prevent dementia eat for breakfast? <laughs> that's a, that's a, that's a, yeah, um, uh, oats, um, uh, lots of fruits, lots of uh, complex carbs, um, uh, clean complex carbs. Uh, some protein in the form of, um, you know, soy or something of that nature, or, uh, or uh, uh, but mostly lots of um, long-term energy for the day. So, and clean energy, not with sugar, avoid sugar at any cost and, and reduce saturated fat at any cost. But uh, that's, that's what we're eating, any form of that. She, my wife, who's a neurologist and a stroke specialist, also a culinary artist, you're missing the best part of the two of us. Uh, sorry for the audience. But, um, but she, uh, she's uh, actually 75 of her recipes are in the cookbook here. Um, but um, one of the things she has is the mindful muffin, which has all the healthy items, but without the negative foods that we've added in the 20th century. So, um, yeah, that's, that's, that's basically what we eat. And we don't feel tired. We don't feel, uh, you know, the, the fatigue that comes out of eating a lot of sugar, you know, that food coma. You feel energized, you feel motivated, you uh, so, uh, and food matters uh, from moment to moment to, to long term. And we'll get into that, yeah. Yeah, and I can attest to, to the, the importance of food and how it does make you feel because since taking more care of my diet and switching to this, this sort of whole food plant-based approach, so the energy levels that I have are just incomparable to what I was. Yeah. And before, before we get into this, I'd like to just you know, shout out a couple of things for any listeners who listen to this discussion today and would like to hear more. You do have the Brain Health Revolution podcast, which I would recommend giving a listen to. And any of the things we talk about today in terms of the foods you can eat and the research behind it, they can find on your website or through the, the book, The 30 Day Alzheimer's Solution, which is on sale now. It's a great book and I definitely recommend it. And I want to sort of shoehorn into this discussion about to what extent we can prevent these diseases with, with, uh, with diet. I noticed that there's a stat that 3% of 
of all cases about Alzheimer's disease are only genetic. 3% of all the cases, that's a small amount. So does that mean upwards of 97% of cases are potentially either preventable or not necessarily reversible, but we can ease the suffering a little bit with, with diet? Um, about about 12 years ago, we actually made the statement that 90% of Alzheimer's is preventable. And that was incredibly controversial. In fact, we got such huge pushback. Um, we understand I was the director of all research education for Loma Linda University, not just for neurology, but for all of research. And and I'm, I was a director of research for Loma Linda. So I understand the importance of approaching things in a, in a data-driven way, not making huge extrapolations. Social media is full of bombastic extrapolation so we were very aware of it and we every time we make a statement we make sure that we 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 speak to the weight of the truth not just the truth that we think it is and uh, um and and we we even said that that's extrapolation but it's a pretty powerful and and sound extrapolation and but but there was a huge pushback people saying that at the time people were saying that no amount of alzheimer's is preventable then a few years ago, some, some papers came out and said, oh, no, about 30%. And then that number grew to 60%. And, and we, we kept saying that when we say 90%, it means that if you live the optimal life and long enough and, and early enough, then yes. But for, for majority, even 50% would be amazing. This is a devastating disease that's rapidly growing. And given the aging population, given that our food is terrible, given that our environment is, is, is becoming more and more uh, less and less conducive for health, the, given that we're moving less, all the factors that contribute to brain health are being attacked. Um, even if we change that by 20%, that's a bigger a bigger factor that, uh, in healthcare than anything else we're doing. So um, 90% comes from that 3%, and we're being actually kind and, and, and generous uh, when it comes to, uh, to that 90%. It should be higher percent, but we're saying, okay, even 90% is, is amazing because only 3% is driven by the kind of genes that are 100% penetrant, meaning that if you have these genes, you will get the disease. There are diseases like that, like on Huntington's, Huntington's disease if you have the gene, that little miscue mis on, on chromosome 4, you will get the disease no matter what you do. I mean, you can affect it a little bit, but, but that's a 100% penetrant gene. And there are other diseases like that as well. Alzheimer's is not like that. Only 3% of Alzheimer's is driven by a high penetrant genes such as presenilin 1, presenilin 2, and APP. And I'll tell you a little bit about those as well. Even APP, which has to do with Down syndrome, we looked at the data on Down syndrome individuals and people who had Down syndrome, but they controlled their diabetes and cholesterol and hypertension, which is actually fairly common in that population, they pushed disease back even in that population. So that gives you an idea that the rest of us, which are not driven by those three genes, have tremendous control on manifestation of this disease. Yeah, it's fascinating. It's such an interesting you know, topic to look into. And one thing I'd like to set out in terms of how this discussion is going to go, one of the things that I, I noticed from your work is we talk, you talk a lot about not just preventing, but also in some cases reversing some level of cognitive decline. Right. And obviously there is a stage at which the damage is too great. Yeah. And sadly, with something like Alzheimer's disease, that's usually the point at which a patient gets diagnosed. Right. So, so what sort of results are we looking at? At what stage can we take some of this re reversal? And at what stage is the damage too great? You know, are we looking at reversing things like malcognitive impairment as opposed to so more mature dementia? 
you know, what sort of effects can we have? I mean, that's a very complex question because every individual is different. And what I mean by that is that your reserve matters, how much you've done to build the reserve, which means that connection is between the brain. We'll talk about what that is about. How much damage have you done prior to all this? Not just the memory that you're starting to lose, but the infrastructure underneath, you know, the, the food, the exercise that, or lack thereof, the stress, uh, the lack of sleep, all of that, all that matters. But in general, if you're pre-dementia stage in the MCI stage, which is mild cognitive impairment stage, there's great hope in being able to reverse it. And not just our work, but many other studies have shown that even exercise at MCI stage has done significant uh, uh, reversal um, and, and nutrition has had significant effect on reversal as well. So even at MCI stage, which is mild cognitive impairment stage, there's great hope. And I, I don't want to give false hope, but even in early dementia, and those that have done the work as far as, you know, some of, some of the other elements, such as cognitive reserve, we've seen those people actually reverse their cases. Um, we don't want to make a statement like Alzheimer's is reversible because some of the other doctors have done that and they're, you know, they're pill pushers and vitamin concoction pushers and we're not going to name names. Um, you know, you have some holes in your brain and if you take these vitamins, you're going to fill them. No, it's not going to be vitamins. It's a comprehensive approach. Um, and 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 but but definitely for a great majority at the MCI stage uh, it's reversible, and definitely if you're just beginning to feel memory issues, that's when you can do a great deal of good. Now the reality is, the 90 to 95 percent applies to those that are in their 30s and 40s and even early 50s who don't have any symptoms but have the wherewithal to say I'm going to start the prevention at this stage. And if they do at that early stage, of course, you're going to get the full benefit of, of, of lifestyle. Yeah, and I think that's that's the key thing to address is, you know, how early we should start this. I've heard you talk in the past about, so in America, you've seen your children with, with white matter disease as a result of, of diet. And, you know, if those changes can be starting that early, then it's imperative that we get this message of, of healthy eating as early as possible because this disease is a long time to manifest, but the, you know, the effects are devastating. Yeah, I mean, it bewilders me that we talk about children's attention deficit, which is an important topic, and I, I've spoken about it. We have to speak about it. Sometimes it's over-diagnosed, but, but it is, when it is diagnosed right, it, it's, it's, uh, it, it can be affected, it can be influenced. But we don't talk about all the other damage we do to children. This is a group whose brain is growing faster than ever in their life. I mean, at every stage in childhood, and the first, of course, first nine months is doubling uh, every few months. Um, and then in the first three years, it's connectivity actually is faster than ever afterwards. And then from three to three on, you're actually building those connections. And then in your teen years, you're myelinating the nerves. That's an incredibly important period of life. When have you heard about a true plan of, of healthy eating for children? You don't. You don't, you don't ever hear, I mean, the right way. And, 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 and yet we feed these children these terrible breakfasts full of sugar, full of fat, quick, you know, they're very quick and easy, but they're poisons. And that's why we, when you look at teenagers who have um, uh, cholesterol and, and, and even pre-diabetes, they have white matter disease, something that doesn't happen in, until your 60s. So we really have to address the importance of food very early on. 
So let, well, let's get into some of the specifics then about the sort of things we can avoid. I noticed in your book you've got uh, sort of this nutrition spectrum that rates things from beneficial to harmful. And one of the things that you know, sort of recurrently comes up is this issue of too much sugar and this idea that Alzheimer's disease is maybe a sort of type 3 diabetes. And I know you've published a couple of studies on linking you know, diabetes to dementia, but also insulin resistance to dementia. Correct. So is, is sugar a good place to start in terms of things to try and cut out of your diet if you want to improve your brain health? Where to start it depends on you. I, I, success is critical. Success, uh, because um, to us, I'm a behavioral neurologist, habit creation is central to everything. And habit has to do with success uh, and your success and your proclivities and your tendencies and your addictions. So if you think that the first place to start is, is, is sugar because I can identify it easier, where am I getting the sugar from? And I can identify it. And it's the one that I can give up easier. Yes, that's where you start. If, if on the other hand, it's saturated fat. And by the way, it can't be all of saturated fat. What category? Is it, is it the meats? Is it the cheeses? Is it the butters? Is it, uh, you know, something else? Then it should be that. So if identify between these two things, saturated fat containing foods and sugar containing foods and inflammatory foods, right? And, and once you identify those, then you look at yourself and say, where can I truly succeed? You know, uh, and, and if it's sugar, absolutely. Now, realize that fat and sugar are addiction foods. They're survival foods. They're not thriving foods. So it's not like we didn't need them. When we were running around in this, um, you know, savannas and, 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 uh, and running away from lions, tigers, and bears, uh, and uh, uh, for the majority of our existence, we lived to age 30, to, if we were lucky. Yeah, we didn't care about atherosclerosis. Sugar and fat was survival food. But they were not thriving foods. So the thriving foods are lots of vegetables and, and, and greens and beans and, and fruits and, and all of that thing with fiber and fiber and fiber. So, um, uh, yeah, you start where you think you can affect and succeed in, in getting rid of one element, one small specific measurable element. Although goals are important, um, you know, smart goals, um, make sure that your smart goals are very specific and very well circumscribed. And then make sure that all your environment is set to make sure you win that battle. Because if you win one habit battle, it's more likely that you're going to win two, three, four, five, six. That's the critical. Yeah, and it's, it's about making those changes sustainable as well. Yes. And, you, and also try not to feel like you're depriving yourself. You know, you want to actually enjoy what you're eating because you're more likely to, to, to carry on. Yeah, That's absolutely. Uh, deprivation is failure. Deprivation is going to... Because your natural state of, uh, uh, of the force that moves you, the dopamine force that moves you, is driven by your habits your natural state that was created throughout your life. And for us, most of us, it's, it's bad habits. It's, it's terrible foods and all of that. So if you're relying on willpower, guess what? That willpower will fail you one day, one fight, one, one stress, one job stress, one, uh, one bad movie, one <laughs> whatever. Um, and, and, and then you're going to succumb to the will of that. So it has to be a system in place where this new behavior is sustainable, it is not a, a, a sense of um, deprivation. You have alternatives that actually take the place of that thing or actually, if, if not completely take the place of it, does the, a good enough job that you can see yourself living with this thing. 
And most importantly, it's long enough that you become habituated to this new behavior. That's a little planning. That's strategy. Yeah, there's, there was a really interesting piece that was run, I think it was a few years ago by the BBC here, where a doctor, I'm not sure what, what kind of special specialist he was, but he switched to a fully processed diet for, I think it was four weeks. And what was interesting is we got some of the, the effects you would expect, things like weight gain, but also his brain started working differently and he was releasing hormones to tell to tell his body that it, he needed more food. So basically the more processed food he, he ate, the more processed food he craved. And it was this vicious cycle and you sort of have to break out of that cycle yeah. to try and get into more healthier living. And I think it's something that is sometimes quite hard to digest, but I've noticed in your work, you sort of try and make it easier for people to work out what's good and what's bad. You've got things like, I might test your memory here, the, the Neuro 9, sort of the nine, the nine important components. Um, I wonder if you can go through those that are important to include in your diet. Yeah. Uh, that, that's more my wife's thing, but, but uh, definitely start with greens. Greens are the, ma- I mean, something as simple as greens. Imagine that. Uh, all the greens. I mean, if you add two servings of greens into your diet, two heaping servings of green. You've changed your life. We're talking about 11 years of living longer and healthier. That's not a number just that's just made up. This is this number is coming to us from multiple studies of adding just greens. And by the way, if you work on adding something instead of taking away something at first, it's it's going to work because there is a zero sum economics to your stomach hopefully. And when you eat greens, it does one of the things. It satiates because more space is taken up, right? More space is taken up, so that's a, one of the three ways that you feel satiety and fullness is space. So greens do that. And, and then all of its anti-inflammatory, antioxidant, glucose regulating, and lipid regulating capacities are incredible. Those are the four processes that we talk about. Uh, oxidation, inflammation, glucose dysregulation, and lipid dysregulation as the causes of disease. And greens counter that profoundly. Yeah. The other ones are uh, beans. Beans are amazing. I'm just ahead of time, I'm going to um, get, this, get rid of this myth that somebody started um, about lectins. That's, their lectins are real, but their danger has been overstated profoundly. Um, lectins are in a lot of foods, and just washing the food gets rid of these. These are the anti-metabolites, um, they call them, um, and it gets rid of them. Um, cooking gets rid of them. Sometimes, you know, uh, fermenting definitely gets rid of a lot of them. So most of the foods that we eat, the beans, they're cooked. That's it, the lectins. But then you're left with some of the highest um, ratio of fiber, some of the best quantity and quality of protein, and all the other nutrients you can imagine in beans. In fact, some of the healthiest places in the world, the one common denominator is beans of all kinds. So beans uh, add that to your uh, food. And then uh, cruciferous vegetables, you know, cruciferous vegetables, including kale and, and you know, all these others are just remarkable for their nutrients, their, for their uh, uh, flavonoids, all these chemicals that, that actually help with inflammation. Some of the best foods as far as inflammation is, is concerned. So greens, beans, lentils, uh, um, uh, grains, grains, they've been demonized. If, if, I, if I would write a book, it would be grains for your brains. Um, yeah, there is the 1% that, that, that have uh, uh, celiac disease that should uh, religiously avoid uh, um, grains um, and they shouldn't be just, uh, like right now when you talk about uh, grains um, or uh, um, you know uh, the, the consequences that people might actually feel from grains, 
everybody thinks they have a problem with grains. They don't. This, the majority of the society has lived with grains prior to the processed foods, and they've actually thrived with it. So grains for majority of us are fantastic for a source of vitamins, nutrients, as well as fiber. So, and, and then you have uh, the berries. The, um, you know, all fruits are great, but some of them are better than others. Uh, berries are absolutely amazing foods um, that, that uh, have lots of anti-inflammatory uh, qualities. All berries, blueberries, and, but, but uh, we have found that other berries are beneficial as well. Um, and, and then uh, you have the um, uh, herbs and spices. Pound for pound, they're some of the most um, beneficial foods when it comes to inflammation and oxidation and all of this stuff. And, and, and more importantly, my wife actually on social, our social media, the, the, the brain docs just released a video on this. More importantly, the, 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 the product that's actually affected us m most negatively in the last few decades is salt. Salt has affected our blood pressure, has affected our uh, cardiac disease risk, our stroke risk, our kidney problem risk. Um, yes, salt. Some salt is necessary because we've we've uh, fortified it with iodine, and iodine is necessary. But the amount of salt we're getting is just tremendous, and and uh, to replace salt is difficult because it has an incredible power. Well, um, we, we're addicted to that as well, and and. Herbs and spices do just that. They replace salt efficiently, but instead of this negative thing, you actually add an amazing food that has all the anti-inflammatories. And then water and green tea are absolutely amazing uh, foods uh, that uh, that have the same kind of uh, properties as well. I don't know if I went over all of them, but those are some of them, and, and they can they can read the rest in the book. And then we have the mindful, the the, the thoughtful twenty. Which is the, the neuro nine are foods that people should try to consume every day, and the thoughtful twenty is foods that they should have in their in their covers uh, that, that 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 really will help them live that life. Uh, mushrooms, mushrooms are my favorite foods in the planet. In fact, mushrooms are the most remarkable um, uh, foods. Period, uh, because of their texture, because their ability to absorb taste, because of their ability to morph themselves into anything you want. And my wife uh, just uh, made a shawarma. You know, before we, when we used to eat a lot of meat, I used, I grew up in Pittsburgh and I used to meet, eat meat seven times a day and missing, you know, uh, giving up shawarma was difficult. Oh my goodness. Making shawarma out of mushrooms just uh, is remarkable. And then you get the benefits of mushrooms and all the things that come with that. So there is so much food that you shouldn't feel deprived if you just strategize and plan a little bit. Yeah, I've done a complete U-turn on mushrooms. I really didn't like them. And now they're some things that I enjoy greatly, especially went for breakfast recently. And my favorite thing on the breakfast was the mushrooms because of the way they were cooked, the herbs they were cooked in, they were just absolutely delicious. Yes. But it's, in it's interesting when you talk about the, the Neuro 9 and highlight these these key foods. They come up in a lot of other things because it's... It's all about a lot, and in, in, in particularly in the case of things like blueberries, and it's about anti-inflammatory properties. And yeah. a remarkable amount of diseases are caused by inflammation. When I look at the Neuro Nine, it's, I may as well be reading the Nine Best Foods for Inflammatory Bowel Disease. You know, because it's again, it's that anti-inflammatory property, getting that fiber, getting those unprocessed foods. Yes. But one that I, that I didn't expect to turn up, and I saw this in, in one of Aisha's talks, was turmeric. The, the, the potential for turmeric to have these beneficial properties for the brain 
is not something I expected to come across. Well, we did a st- when we were directors of Brain Health Institute at uh, uh, in Cedar Sinai. One of the studies that we lifestyle studies we were doing and uh, was on effect of curcumin, which is a one of the products within turmeric, and we were measuring. Uh, we were looking at uh, curcumin binding to amyloid. Amyloid is the bad protein that accumulates, one of the bad proteins that accumulates in Alzheimer's. And using a special device, because retina, the human retina is a continuum of the central nervous system, right? So whatever is happening in retina is kind of continuous with what's happening in the rest of the brain. When you looked at the retina with the special device, you saw the curcumin actually bind to, um, to um, uh, amyloid. Uh, which was remarkable. In fact, if you uh, um, go to Google Scholar and put that in, you'll see our paper, two of them that just came out. Um, and, and, and then the body would remove it. And so curcumin ha- and turmeric being as well, a continuum of that has anti-inflammatory effects on its own directly and antioxidant. And more importantly, or just as importantly, it also binds to amyloid, which is presumed to be removed by the body once it binds in that complex form. So lots of benefit. Um, usually, if you're going to take that, take it with pepperin or pepper because it increases its bioavailability. But you can take it in food form, which we do, or you can take it in pill form. <clears throat> so that's, that's um, something that, uh, to be aware of. Yeah, and, and all these studies I find fascinating because it's, it's the potential to affect your life in a positive way without, obviously in the UK, we're very fortunate to have the NHS. So a lot of our treatments are either free or a massively reduced rate of works out about $15 per prescription. Yeah. But obviously in America, you know, you have the, the healthcare system of insurance, a lot of people have to pay out of pocket. These yeah. are things that you can action just by changing your shopping bill. And what I find frustrating is people, particularly scientists, who will dismiss this idea without looking into the literature. And so you almost have to exude exu- a lot of energy to try and get these you know, people to think, actually this could be of benefit. And there is no downside to doing something like this. Really. So I guess my question to you is, if you had someone who was perhaps skeptical about this, are there any population studies or any other data data sets that you would direct them to to say, if you look at this, you can see that there actually is quite compelling evidence of at least a correlation, if not a causal link between these dietary changes and improving your brain health? There are a tremendous number of studies. Um, the, um, the Framingham Health Study, which is a heart study, which is the one in Harvard, uh, over uh, several decades that has repeatedly shown the effects of lifestyle, uh, specifically cholesterol and fatty foods that, uh, for its harm and um, uh, healthy food for its benefits, more plants. Uh, the, the MIND study, which was with Martha Morris, which showed that a plant-predominant food um, uh, diet actually reduced your chance of Alzheimer's by 53%. Um, the Adventist Health Study, that's why we came actually to Loma Linda, because the Adventist Health Study is a study of 96,000 people over 50 years, and a larger percentage of them being vegetarians and, and plant-based, whole food plant-based, repeatedly, whether it was cancer, whether it was heart disease, whether it was longevity, whether it was now the cognitive decline, all across all of these, repeatedly it's been shown that people who've had a plant-predominant diet had a much lower risk of those diseases. Um, it's, it's consistent across every study that you look at. Now, what, what the people that want to oppose this concept uh, are saying is, oh, these are epidemiological studies. And this is a marketing ploy. Uh, for people who don't know science, they're actually marketing or they're, uh, they're, they're creating a mindset that as if epidemiology is not research, which is, which is amazing power of how people can reframe reality. 
Epidemiology is the same science that made you wear seatbelts. Because we never did randomized clinical trials of people driving with and without seatbelts. That would be unethical. Yeah. Um, the same studies that should show that bullets kill you. We would never do randomized clinical trials of bullets being killers or not killers. There's a good core retrospective correlational data there. We never did prospective randomized clinical trials of cigarette smoking because uh, that would be unethical. We never do randomized clinical trials of cyanide. That would be unethical. These, this doesn't make sense. Random, strong, consistent, across the board, uh, um, well-powered, well-controlled or uh, addressed for studies that look at strong correlations have been the benchmark of everything we've done. And, and all the positive things around you has been based on those, most of them. So to talk about randomized clinical trials as the only path is so myopic and almost nefarious because I think it doesn't take that much thinking to figure out that that can't be. By the way, you can't do randomized clinical trials on studies that require 20 years of data to look at long-term effect. You, you would bankrupt an entire nation by doing that with one study. So it, it's just um, um, plenty, I mean, I mean, in fact, the amount of the number of data, the studies are just overwhelming, speaking to the effect of whole food plant-based or at least plant predominant, you know. And I think a good measure for me, a good marker of whether or not something should be at least debated and considered is, is the person who is telling me this information trying to sell me something. And so many times when I look at these, these talks about the benefits of, of eating healthy, no one's trying to sell me something. And if you look at you know, who sponsors the, the studies, it's not some big dairy conglomerate or some big meat conglomerate. It's, it's funded by interest. Yes. And you can find the information for free. It's out there to try and benefit people. So I always think that's a good thing to look at because usually when someone is trying to, say, sell a supplement, you know, you can tell by the way they present the research. But with yeah. this, it's, it's out of genuine desire to help people and help reduce the burden of these diseases because prevention is so much better than cure in this case. Yeah. Uh, even there, I want to just for transparency's sake, so people, you know, they believe it. But even on the on the healthy food side, there are times where companies actually sponsor. For example, nut companies or olive oil companies. Uh, I mean, we say, I mean, we we've had some pushback against us uh, saying that oh, but olive oil is not whole food. Well, anything that's got used processed a bit is can can be considered non whole food. But the, the data for, uh, for um, um, uh, uh, you know, a virgin, extra virgin olive oil is there, that it's uh, in small amounts, and that amount has to be better determined. It's not harmful, and it might be actually beneficial. But, but at the same time, some of the studies are sponsored by, by those companies, so we have to distill those out and see what, still, what data is still left. Uh, it, all people, you, you're absolutely right. If people just do the due diligence and find out where the interests lie, and where the body of information, the, the bulk of information lies, then, then it makes sense there, yeah. And it's interesting, you've talked about the, um, the MIND study in the past um, as one of the diets. Uh, what I find interesting there is if you look at the results of that and the foods that, that came up as, as important, it does sound very similar to a diet we will reveal in a second as being the best. But if you look, it's high amounts of leafy green vegetables, other vegetables, berries, whole grains, a small amount of fish, and we can talk a little bit later about why you can maybe cut that out poultry, beans, nuts, and no more than one glass of wine a day. Sounds very similar to the diet we're perhaps going to name in a second. Yes, yeah. And, and that is obviously the whole food plant-based diet. The, you know, the weight of evidence seems to be that eating that, it seems strange that it can sometimes be controversial to say, eat more vegetables and you'll be healthier, but that's where you know, the weight of the evidence lies. Yeah, yeah. And I think with the MIND diet, um, there are times where the data 
um, uh, is, is so this, let's talk about the fish component. Um, there's no question that the data on fish is, um, for the most part, positive. Let's let's be honest, especially small fish like salmon, mackerel, and all of those. My wife and I and our children we don't eat fish or any meat, but but we have to stand by the data. The data shows that eating small amounts of meat, uh, fish, is is not good for you. Uh, it's good for you, um, and that and that that's the data. But what is it about fish? It's it's not it, what it is. Is omega three. And, and people may, may, make an, may, may make an argument that, no, it's something beyond that. It is not. When you really distill the data, it's omega-3. So whether you get your omega-3 from fish or, in our case, we, we you know, from food or even supplements. And now, what happens, people become purists, like, oh, no, if it's not completely natural, I'm not going to eat it. Well, it, there's a lot of things around you that are not natural. You going at 75 miles an hour while sitting in chair is not natural but you're still using it so where the data is strong people should if they and if they can't get the alternative they should get omega-3 from pill form you know um, um but most of the time you can get it from chia flaxseed nuts lots of other foods that will 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 do the job for you and in the plant form um usually it's uh, um, ala which that means that the body has to convert it so be aware of how much you're getting and be aware of the fact that that enzyme that actually converts ALA to EPA to, and DHA, which is the form that's needed, especially for the brain, um, can be overwhelmed if your diet is also full of omega-6 or your liver is overtaxed with alcohol or some other drugs. So, so just be aware of that and you'll be fine. Um, by the way, the only kind of fat that your brain needs is omega-3. So yeah. not, you know, there are those people that are saying your brain is made of fat, therefore you need fat eat lots of fat. No, that's that's wrong. Brain does not have storage fat. The brain does not have any kind of metabolic fat. Its favorite form of energy is glucose in in, in an even keel. You know, uh, so that's that's the that's the data on on brain and energy. Yeah, and, and it's interesting you mentioned so chia and flax seeds. A good way to incorporate those into a diet I find is to put them in a smoothie or put them into your morning bowl of oats. And yeah. it actually it gives it a nice thicker texture and, and you start to really enjoy that, that extra textural element with, with the seeds in there and you know you're benefiting yourself now you touched upon alcohol as a british person we have a culture of, of you know drinking over here uh, i try to avoid drinking now i set myself one night a week i'm allowed two glasses of wine partly for, for my gut but also for my overall health is alcohol something we should avoid completely or is that is it something that we can mod moderate or you know what's the data show on alcohol so i'll start by saying that my wife and i we drink a glass of wine here and there um, uh, but we're not going to fit science to fit our lifestyle. So uh, the data so far, and I, my favorite phrase that we've actually taught our kids, uh, and, and, and this little bit of uncertainty is the best thing about science. It, it op so absolute certainty is not science. So uh, to the best of our knowledge today, that's the phrase. And, and uh, to the best of our knowledge today, the amount of alcohol that's beneficial for your brain is... Zero? Zero, yeah. yeah. But, but I don't think a glass here and there is going to harm harm you. And, and even if it does, I'm not going to change the science to fit my lifestyle, which is what we all do, right? And, and so, so we say that the, if you can avoid it, avoid it. If you're going to eat it, drink a few glasses here and there per month just because it's a good social lubricant, absolutely, go ahead. Uh, but don't start drinking alcohol for your health benefit. That's not the way to, to, to talk. And, and one of the most controversial videos we ever made was on alcohol and me saying just that. 
it got shared 150,000 times immediately and 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 uh, and um, uh, it wasn't all nice let's just say that but <laughs> truth is truth um, I do a lot of things that, are, that, that might not be beneficial for my life, but I'm not going to search the internet. You know, there's a saying that we, 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 uh, people love hearing good news about their bad habits, or they actually go find good news about their bad habits. Um, but uh, that's the reality, and I'm going to live with a glass of wine here and there. Yeah, it's, 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 you know, the classic example is the idea that red wine is good for you, but it's actually the polyphenols that you can get just by eating red grapes and by avoiding the alcohol and the inflammatory properties of it. Exactly, exactly. But it is, not to speak about all the other things that socially it does to us as a, as, a, yeah. as a society, yes. Yeah, and I think a good, sort of a good, another good philosophy, I believe it's Michael Greger who has, he calls it the better than philosophy. So it's giving up alcohol better than drinking it, yes. But if you can't, is having one glass of wine a week better than drinking every night? Yes, start there and see how you go. I fully agree with it, 100%, 100%, yeah. So we've we talked a lot about food, and that's been you know the focus and you know vitamins and, and whether or not we should supplement vitamins. But there are other important factors that we can, I think we should touch, just touch on before we close. So you talked about this idea of the importance of clearing amyloid out of the brain and optimizing those processes. So I guess that brings then in sleep as an important another important factor for reducing your risk of Alzheimer's because that's when a lot of that clearance takes place. Yeah. So how how much of an issue is, is sleep? I mean, let's look. I'm going to say it in a way where it actually it's almost a eureka moment to a lot of people. It's like, why would evolution have introduced something such as eight hours where you're knocked out and paralyzed? I mean, literally physi physiologically paralyzed one third of your life if it wasn't that important. In fact, it is so important that it's more important than one third of your survival benefit from, from, from predators. That's how important it is. Uh, and what it does is multiple things. It's 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 the one. It's the most important period of your day where brain actually cleanses. You know, we get invited to these um, um, events for cleansing this and cleansing juice, and you know, you hear all these these mediums and all selling the juices for cleansing and all that. There's the only two cleanses I know are water and most importantly, sleep, because the brain actively changes its shape to clean itself. In fact, the vessels shrink. There's greater space created in the brain during sleep, especially deep sleep, so that the cleansing takes place. The glial cells, the microglia, which are actually outnumber neurons significantly, get activated during night to clean the brain. Now, if you don't get good night's sleep, even a couple of nights good night's sleep, those glia actually go awry and start eating away from good brain. That's why people who've had bad sleep for many years actually have smaller brains. Well, one of the reasons. But so that's that's why sleep is important. The second thing it does is helps with memory, helps with short-term memory and long-term memory. Better than any memory memory trick, better than any you know book of some some guru that's teaching you memory devices. Get a good night's sleep. A good night's sleep helps with consolidating memories, short-term and long-term. Yeah, and that's that's so important. And you do feel the benefits when you start to sort out your sleep schedule. It is not just critical for the brain, but you'd be surprised about how many things suddenly start to get better when you start getting enough sleep and start getting up early, getting up at the same time every day, and then starting to eat well. Yeah. So I feel like this is something we could talk about for hours, but obviously, you know, in the interest of time, I think we have to, to wrap this up sadly shortly. Yeah. But I want to ask you, so as a take-home message to the people who are listening today and, and want to try and affect their life in a positive way, what is the main piece of advice you would give to somebody who wants to try and 
live a healthier lifestyle, increase the, lo- the longevity of their healthy lifestyle. Because we now know, Alan Desmond mentioned this in our last episode, that the food we eat is the number one cause of loss of healthy years lived. So what is the main piece of advice you would give to a listener who wants to try and make some of these changes? Yeah. Um, first of all, the neural concept, nutrition, exercise, unwind or stress management, restorative sleep and optimizing mental activity. Learn about that. Optimizing mental activity means living a mentally challenged life around your purpose. Find a purpose that really pushes your brain. Those connectivity, the connectivity between neurons are so important. We have 87 billion neurons. Each of them can make a couple of connections or 30,000 connections each. And you make those connections when you challenge your brain around your purpose. And it could be learning a musical instrument, learning music, uh, running a company that you always wanted to volunteer. Complex behaviors that challenge all parts of your brain. But it's driven by your purpose because the neg- the other part of it, when it's not driven by your purpose and it's stress-filled, actually damages your brain. We speak about that quite a bit. It's a very important concept. Find your purpose and build a life around it. Then nutrition, exercise, and all of that stuff you know what it is. Whole food, plant-based exercise is a little more than you thought. You got to get tired. You got to get the aerobic in there and you got to get the leg strength in there as well. And, and then sleep. For, for, for each of these others, identify what your goals are clearly, but take one goal at a time and inculcate it into the system of your life. Goals by themselves are great, but then when they become part of your life, then they become you. So if it's eliminating sugar... It shouldn't be a diet plan that eliminates sugar. No, how am I going to live my life from here on not feeling deprived as they're finding the replacement for sugar and and eliminating sugar from my environment? That's a system and a goal that's achievable and becomes part of your life. Then as far as meat is concerned, as far as cheese, cheese is an amazing thing. I mean, let's be honest. Can I find cheese alternatives that have very low or no saturated fat, have close to the same taste, and can become part of my life, yes, then you inculcate it into your life and set clear goals for yourself. When you do it that way, it can be your life as opposed to the next diet plan, next year, new year resolution, next thing that will fail you. Yeah, and I think it's important to try and you know, dissociate it from this idea of sort of fat diets. This is this is not a diet, this is a lifestyle change, and a lifestyle improvement. Well, I think this has been a really fascinating discussion and I'd like to direct our listeners, if they're interested in what they've heard today, I direct them to your website, teamshersi.com. On that website, they can find your book, The 30-Day Alzheimer's Solution. They can also find links to your podcast, Brain Health Revolution Podcast. And also something we didn't get to touch on today is your Neuroplan, where you can give these, these people a more personalized approach for trying to make these improvements. And I think that's an important thing as well for people to check out. If you want to speak on that, I think that would be interesting before yeah, we go. Those are all great. One of the things we are so proud of is what we do for non-for-profit part of our work, which is healthymindsinitiative.org, healthymindsinitiative.org. We want to start community-driven endeavors throughout the world. We've started in Germany. We've started in <clears throat> Spanish-speaking countries. Um, <clears throat> we want to start it in UK. And it's about lifestyle in the communities. It's not for profit. We won the National Academy of Medicine Award for our work in the African-American churches. And that's near and dear to our heart because it's everything we do in our, uh, is towards that endeavor. So go to healthymindsinitiative.org. And if you want to volunteer, if you want to donate, if you want to make, start a community, online community uh, for UK, um, uh, we would love that. And, uh, and then, of course, we do everything else, which is the Brain Docs on social media, the Brain Docs, um, D-O-C-S. 
And uh, in there, we'll talk about the neural plan and uh, other endeavors that we have uh, going on at this point. And we're so glad to be connected to you guys. That's really great. It's been, a, it's been a pleasure to have you on. So I think it, all we could do now is thank you very much for, for joining us. It's been a fascinating discussion. So thank you. It's been a privilege. I hope you've enjoyed yourself. And and thank you to all our listeners as well for tuning into this episode. I hope you found it useful. And if you would like to reach out to, to Dean or Aisha, I'm sure they'd be happy to answer any questions you have. But in the meantime, thank you all for listening. And we'll see you next time. Thank you. Brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk in association with Alzheimer's Research UK and Alzheimer's Society. Supporting early career dementia researchers across the world.